Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Please stand, if you are able, as we read from the Old Testament. In the, king that, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Please be seated. Before we come to our study in Isaiah, uh, a couple of uh, announcements. The first is, it will have not escaped, I think you'll notice, that next Saturday is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Uh, I want to recommend to you a movie, I just saw it last night on Apple TV. Uh, it's an extremely good movie, 9-11 Inside the President's War Room. Interview with all the principal characters, including former President George W. Bush. Uh, a, a, really a recounting of the events of that day and the way in which God preserved our nation from a very great evil. So I do want to present that to you as much as a spur to your prayers as anything else. We mustn't be those who forget these things, but to pray particularly for those who have lost loved ones during these last 20 years on 9-11, but also in the wars that followed, that we all might have the uh, hope of the gospel. Secondly, next Saturday also, in a kind of similar vein, we are holding a pro-life prayer breakfast here at 9 a.m. here at SPC in the Fellowship Hall. It's uh, sponsored by Richmond Is For Life and five life-affirming ministries in the Richmond area, which gives us the opportunity as we kick off our fall to um, uh, pray that God would change the nation uh, regarding the industry of abortion. So please come if you are able, sign up to bring fruit or muffins as those are always welcomed as we extend hospitality to our guests. But I do encourage you, this too is a work of prayer that God would continue to work to change our nation. Let's pray then as we come to our study in Isaiah. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Those are the words that your spirit gave to the apostle Peter to say to Jesus. To whom else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
And we find ourselves, Father, in the same position this morning, saying like Peter did, to whom else should we go? Lord, would you speak through your word? Would you use your word to your glory in our congregation and to those that we invite to come hear the gospel, to those that we share the gospel with? Lord, would you apply your word by your spirit to the things that we have been asking questions about this week? to those things that we have been worried about this week, to those things that we have hoped for this week. And for our nation, in the, in the light of this 20th anniversary of 9-11, Lord, would you show us what is most important, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning we begin Isaiah. We've entitled uh, this series, Big God, Big Plan. It's not an original title, but I think it works really well in summarizing the chief ideas uh, of this book and connecting those ideas with the chief needs of people like us who are seeking God and asking questions about his plan. Reading Isaiah in the light of our series title, I'm reminded of that iconic moment in the movie Jaws where Roy Scheider, who you remember, plays the sheriff of a sleepy Massachusetts beach resort, is suddenly faced with the daunting horror of a massive great white shark just off the coast. And while at sea, you may remember this is one of the turning points of the movie, he comes face to face literally with all three tons of the monster grinning at him. And staggering back into the cabin, he tells Robert Shaw, you're going to need a bigger boat. That, I would suggest to you, is Isaiah in a nutshell. This is Isaiah staggering back from the vision of the Almighty, telling us you're going to need a whole new way of thinking and living space for the God that I have been shown, the God that you think you're dealing with. Now, some of you, no doubt, have been asking if Isaiah begins with chapter 1, why did we have Janice read from chapter 6? Good question. I was prepared for it, I have three answers why. The first reason is that the book, you will notice, has to do with a total paradigm shift to Israel's thinking. We like to think of ourselves, I think, as evangelical Christians as having these nice little studies about God. We go to church and we hear about Isaiah. So you meet your friend at Starbucks and they ask what your church is preaching on these days and you say, Isaiah, I think, although the preacher sometimes says Isaiah, and your friend says, oh, that's nice, we're doing parables. And you go, hmm, and you sip your ice honey milk, uh, honey oat milk latte. And you're thinking this is what Christians do, we learn about God. Except I think that's not Christian faith, and that's not what Isaiah presents us with. This vision of God interrupts our suburban way of accumulating information. This is an encounter with the living God. It's a live fire exercise as it's presented to us. You're going to need a bigger boat, Isaiah says, as he challenges us, as God challenges us through him. And I would say because Isaiah is pretty much the same kind of a person that we are, you're going to deal with the same fears and the same questions as Isaiah had that day as God brought him into his presence. And something or someone has just swum by, swum by the bow of your little life and the waves are rocking the boat. That's what it is to deal with the God 
who is there. The second reason is that this version of God in Isaiah 6 probably actually came first chronologically in Isaiah's life. It was the beginning point before anything else happened. There were 15 Old Testament prophets and a number of them had disciples who collected and arranged their material after their deaths. That doesn't mean that Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel weren't the authors of their prophecies or that they weren't actually the ones who received them and spoke them. They were. But it just means they had editors who after their deaths collected, organized and published them so that wider audiences and successive generations could hear God's word through them. And so what we're seeing here, I would put to you, is the arrangement of Isaiah's editors, of his disciples, looking thematically at what's most important in the way they put this together. And Isaiah 6 kind of stands as a hinge in these first 12 chapters or so of the way that the God of the Old Testament and the New is presented to us because the editors have arranged the material that way. The third reason is that we all of us need a reality check that we can work with. You know, the staff uh, sat around last Tuesday morning and looked at Isaiah chapter 1 and concluded that it's pretty dismal stuff. There's not much encouragement if you just start off with uh, Isaiah chapter 1 or Isaiah chapter 5. It would be a bit like reading the history of World War II, blitzkrieg and death camps and slavery and flying bombs and sunken transports and hunter-killer yo-boats without actually having heard who won the war. So carefully and deliberately, we need to come to this book as Isaiah came to his calling with the vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6 before us every time we come to it and every day we come to our Christian walk. It is the case for us as we walk in faith because the sadness and the tragedy and the bleakness of every day in this veil of tears will overwhelm us. It will crush us if we don't remember the glory of the God of grace who gives us the author and perfecter of our faith and brings us this reminder from Isaiah 6 of who he is. You have to bring that to your ground game, otherwise you will lose heart and lose sight of God and his gospel plan and be tempted to look elsewhere. So to begin with, we're going to read Isaiah with these two necessary perspectives for our reality check. We're going to start with Isaiah 6, and then we're going to move to Isaiah chapter 1. So let me ask you please to turn to... If you have a physical Bible before you, that would be excellent. There should be a pew Bible there uh, nearby. If you don't have that, of course, find one on your phone, one of the advantages of the modern era. And to uh, chapter 6, we're going to concentrate on verses 1 through 7. And this encouragement that God is far bigger than any of us have expected C.S. Lewis, if you've read his brilliant book, Miracles, describes his own Roy Scheider-like experience when dealing with the Almighty. There comes a moment, he said, when the children who've been playing at burgers hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who've been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Suppose we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he found us. 
To compare God to a shark seems wrong, of course, although I imagine that the great white shark is as much a reflection of God's glory in creation as the golden retriever is, probably more so. But perhaps it's better to ask, as Lucy Pevensey does in the Narnia Chronicles of the lion Aslan, is he safe? To which the answer comes, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And right there, I would put to you, is the theme of Isaiah. For Israel, as confused as she was looking at the world, she had lost her way. The people were looking to all kinds of human capacity and power. And here is Isaiah being shown the true king, far above all kings and heroes that Israel has been tempted to place their faith in. And it's not so different for us, is it? in our modern world. We too are confused. We too have lost sight of what's most important and who it is that has called us. So this is where it starts for Isaiah. He is given a vision of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. I wonder if there was a moment for Isaiah where he wondered where he was. I remember in London a few years ago walking near Buckingham Palace and seeing a big car drive past about 200 yards away and all I could see was a small pink hat and I think I caught a small wave. And I knew immediately who it was. I imagine that Isaiah all the more so knew immediately in his presence he stood. This, as we will read later, was his Rubicon moment. Whether he had sought it or not, there was no going back. This vision changed everything in his ministry and in his life. He had been brought here to see the Lord of hosts himself. The commentators suggest, I think this is intriguing, that there is a point where words appear to break down in the presence of God and the experience of the vision of God. So it was that the elders of uh, Israel, when pressed for the vision that they received at Sinai in Exodus, they will tell you how blue the pavement was that God was standing on. Or here, Isaiah will tell you how immense Yahweh's robe is. Did the robe fill the temple? No, it was God who did. But he's almost too much to look at. And Isaiah doesn't locate the temple, you notice, precisely, but it seems to be in both places, both the palace and the temple where he's standing in Jerusalem, and almost superimposed upon it and overwhelming it, the throne room of heaven and the king who is above every king. The prophets were given visions. One of the curious things is we don't know how. They don't say specifically how they receive them. Amos and Micah and Isaiah say that they saw the word, which is intriguing. It's a vital idea in the Bible that they saw the word. But the raw experience, the seeing, if you will, was not what the revelation was ultimately about, but about the word. In their experience, they saw it, they, they experienced it, but it was in what commentators call the cognitive interpretation of the experience given to them by the Spirit. In other words, what you have in your hands, sovereignly imposed, superimposed, and, and superintended by God, preserved by him, is the Bible. So you have in your hands what Isaiah saw. You have the fruitful report of it, even though you weren't there to experience it personally. 
And where is Isaiah? Well, we gather this from reading his vision. He is at the threshold of the sanctuary of the Almighty. Likely, he's lying prostrate at the very doorway. Someone has said of Isaiah that his whole consciousness is riveted upon the immense being whose presence dominates, literally the word is in the original, his big house. And as he looks, Isaiah becomes aware of other beings around the throne who are worshipping the Creator. Those angels who are closest to God's person, they're not mentioned here, but we read of them later. The cherubim, who are not small babies with wings, but are massive heavenly creatures whose purpose appears to be to keep guarded the Lord's uh, holiness, to keep from him all darkness and sin. And the seraphim, who are closest to him, who we read about here, are angels of pure fire, all wings and voice, crying constantly to each other, delighting in God's glory, because to be in God's presence is not to cringe in fear, but to delight in his praise. And so they describe him continually, almost lost for words, holy, 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 which, as you will know, is God's own adjective for himself. So the angels of Isaiah 6 shouting to Isaiah, simultaneously warning and encouraging him and us, you have never met, no, you have never imagined the overwhelming majesty, the infinite love, the ultimate justice, the blinding purity of the being that you are dealing with. To see that one day will be a marvelous thing, and we will. We will. We used to sing a song here back in the day called All Heaven Declares. If it's one of your favorite songs, um, it's not a bad song. It's very pleasant in a harmoniously droning kind of way. It has uh, these words. It's not one of my favorites, but it has these words which are good. Who can compare with the beauty of the Lord? Forever he will be the lamb upon the throne. Absolutely true. But he says, I gladly bow my knee, the author says, and worship him alone. To which I've always wondered, that's nice, but it really doesn't read like the rush of opposing emotions that Isaiah experiences here in the presence of the Almighty. Is he gladly bowing his knee? No, he is panicking for his life. Woe is me, which on this occasion is not something you say to stop a horse. It's an old way of saying, I am in extreme peril before a holy God. So isn't this striking? Spare a thought here for Isaiah as he recounts this experience at the very moment that he's utterly overwhelmed by his own sin in the presence of a holy God. He sees that one of these angels closest to God, one of the seraphim, has been sent to intercept him, perhaps seeing him as a sinful stowaway. And the angel is carrying, as Janice read to us, something in his hands from the burning altar before God's presence. If you're Isaiah at that moment, what are you thinking as this massive, fiery angel hurtles towards you? You're not thinking, I'm going to gladly bow my knee. You're thinking, it's all over. I'm toast, or I'm about to be. But rather than exterminating him, the angel places the live coal of God's directly transferred holiness onto Isaiah's lips, 
signifying the sanctification of his life and his calling from God. Isn't this tremendous? It's a gospel statement. Behold, the angel says, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And we, looking on from the perspective of the gospel, we know what has happened. We know that there is only, the New Testament tells us, and there has only ever been one atonement for sin, which is now applied to this prophet of the gospel as it must be applied to us. Who or what is this live coal? It is the word of God. It is, the apostle John said, his son Jesus, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So where does that leave us? Well, I think away with all of those empty sermons on Isaiah 6 appealing to human potential, the messages that will tell you that all that God is looking for are available religious people who will say, here I am, send me. That may be necessary, that will come, but of itself it's rubbish. There is no mortal solution. We are the problem, not the solution. The whole picture here is of the awesome glory of God in his justice, his holiness, and in his love to us through Christ. And so the exalted joy of his worshippers, these massive heavenly creatures around him, worshipping in him in his grace, and the atoning sacrifice given to Isaiah where God's justice has been perfectly met at his altar in Jesus Christ, all of it coming at God's working and God's initiative and God's expense through his own unique son. If that was true for Isaiah, it is equally true for us. So I would say to you, by way of application, none of us can say God hasn't bothered to reach out to us. If you thought that was the case before this morning, it certainly isn't the case now, because this angel is speaking to you. He is saying to you, you are not beyond the need of rescue. You need this. You need to be right with God. This is the chief problem and issue of your life. Not what you will achieve in this life, but are you separated from the God who loves you? Yes, you are if you have not made yourself peace with him through his initiative through Christ Jesus. Nor can any of us say, God hasn't done anything for me. What we see here is that God has taken the initiative. This is him reaching out to you. This is him calling to you. He's not asking you to try harder at being a decent human being or make up for that terrible thing that you did. He is asking you now to receive him and having received him, live dependently, ethically, joyfully in newness of life within the good of the gospel for him in the atoning sacrifice he has made for you in Jesus. You know, I think if we were to have Isaiah 6 as our Bible study for every day of our lives, we would not waste the time. Because we need to see, this is not someone creeping into heaven and delivering some National Enquirer unauthorized heavenly expose. That's not what it's about at all. It's about God revealing himself to his people as he is, as the God of all grace and the God of all justice who has reached out to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this same king that Isaiah saw 
is the same king this morning that you are being presented with, this big God. Okay, that having been said, please turn to chapter 1. We're going to spend uh, a brief time in chapter 1 just picking up some of the, the themes of these first few chapters. The God's plan here is far bigger than we can see. That's, that's the freight of this. The point is, we're now back down to earth. God speaking to us, not just within the heavenly vision, but speaking into your situation, primarily through his son. I'm going to deal briefly with the three sets of verses from chapter one that you can see on the flip side of the order of worship. As we do so here, we can see precisely at this point that we need to keep in mind chapter six. And again, why do we need to do so? because our tendency is always to revert to a kind of bootstraps theology. I find my, for myself, if I start with something like chapter one, I find that I'm always going to do one of two things. I'm either going to say, I'll fix it. Thanks for letting me know, God. I'll take it from here. Or the other side of bootstraps theology is the human disaster movie, oh no, I can't fix this, there is no hope, God's hands are tied. No, Isaiah would tell us, big God, big plan. God is bringing about his salvation. God is enacting his plan and bringing about his salvation according to his methods. So briefly then, three points where the vision touches down. First of all, notice here in verses 2 through 5, the problem is personal and painful for God. Someone has said, if God is anything, he is a person intimately and passionately involved with his creatures. His emotions are neither fickle nor arbitrary. They are real and deep. His hatred of sin is as intense as his approval of what is right is profound. So there are two extremes to avoid as we read these verses. And again, it doesn't matter if this is your first time in church, whether you are a believer right now or an unbeliever. However we find ourselves, these are are kind of um, instinctual reactions to the God that we read in the Bible. The picture, first of all, of the impulsive red-faced tyrant in a culture that prides itself and loves its freedoms. This is our our instinctual fear that God will rule over us. The other is of a passionless, disconnected, watchmaking deity, devoid of emotion, really careless of any need that we have, for whom we are just simply pawns in a larger chess game. But notice neither is the picture here. The God of Isaiah, as presented to Isaiah, is inherently ethical. That is, things matter to him that we do. He is merciful, which means that our condition matters to him. He is just. He has presented himself to Isaiah because Isaiah matters to him as his own people and the people who don't know him yet do. So this is the diagnosis, isn't it? Verse 4, it's still the diagnosis. Sinning nation, guilt-laden people, evil generation, corrupt children of God. Our Lord wept for these things before Jerusalem, and he went to the cross for them. 
Secondly, what we're told to do is to turn away from evil and to the gospel. Again, this hasn't changed, verses 16 to 20. One of the things that makes our worldview class, which Mark Bilger is teaching, so valuable, so necessary, as is our other class on the Bible, is that we, the church, have forgotten or never known how we are called to think and how what we are called to do in this world at the direction of the Almighty. Believing the gospel means living in a new way. And if you go to our prayer class, our prayer group, you will be reminded that we cannot do that aside from depending upon the God of all grace. And what you find here in this first chapter is that God won't let Isaiah or his people hide behind religious concepts or religious liturgy if their minds and lives are not adhering to the dictates and to the gospel of God. What do we read here? Well, perhaps this first verse, first part of the verse in verse 16 says it all, cease to do evil. You know, we not only, I think, overlook this now as a call to change, a call to obey, but we misunderstand the missionary imperative of the way that our lives go. That people will see you and see the way you operate before they know that you are a Christian or know the content of what it is that you believe. And this is the missionary call to God's people. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Why are those things important? They are important because they reflect the God of all grace. Listening to some Christians, you would think we were exempt from such obligations, reflecting our Lord's character and his call to obey him. But notice what the motive for doing so is. Verse 18 is immediately following, you'll vote, notice here, uh, verse 17. The obligation of verse 17 is followed by, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. In other words, the obligation to act in a certain way is motivated by the gospel which tells us how and why we should. It is because God has rescued you and made you right with himself, calling you his son or daughter, that he has called you to his work, to strive in dependence upon him, to live according to his word. And finally, the solution is what God will bring about according to his plan, verses 24 through 28. Notice what God tells Judah through Isaiah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. You know, one of the things that's striking watching the documentary of 9-11 is to hear President Bush, 43, speak in his own words and remembrances of the frustration he felt as he was kind of cocooned on Air Force One going around the country, kept from the capital, uh, remembering his deep frustration that they didn't know who it was that they needed to bring justice to, let alone how they were going to bring justice against those who had attacked this country. But notice God says this, I will get relief from my enemies and I will avenge myself on my foes. This, as you know, is the complaint of so many that we live 
in an age of suffering and of sin that's nothing new. We will do to the end of our days and to the end of history, but we are assured that the God of justice will ultimately bring justice totally and fairly and completely to our planet and to our history. But that same God of justice has put off that day of justice that we might receive mercy. I doubt you'll find anyone in the world today who will tell you that things are as they should be. In fact, uh, every few years we have people turning up, uh, telling us that things are horribly broken, and then proceeding to tell us it's the Republicans' fault or the Democrats' fault. But if you'll just vote for me, I'll fix it in the next four years or two years or however many it may be. Hence the ads on TV. Not so, says Isaiah. And I don't think he's telling us that Christians shouldn't be politically involved or involved in scientific inquiry or social care or human rights or any of these other things. But Isaiah is reminding us they are not the solution because those things at heart are not the problem. It is that human beings are separated from their creator. And even those who know him have failed to represent his character. It is for those reasons that we need a savior. Only he has offered both the solution to evil and the rescue for human beings from it through Christ. And so if people ask you, what is your good news? Think carefully but profoundly before you answer because it is not the things which so often are characterized as Christianity. It is the God of the gospel here in the Old Testament in Isaiah also. That is the solution and the cure. So in closing, let me suggest to you there are two errors which tempt us away from the plan which we find here. The first error is the historic error of Judah presumption. They couldn't imagine that they might possibly themselves become enemies of God. I was reflecting this, this last week on my own tendency to sin. I know exactly, I don't know if this has come across your mind, that moment when you read Psalm 73 and you read there, I have become like a beast towards you. When we get into a track of sin where we are, we find repelled from the holiness of God and we become, I say to myself, bitter, brutish, British. <laughs> I can see a trajectory in my own life where my label as Christian might say one thing and my life consistently say to God another. It is presumption. What's the solution? Well, again, it's daily to run again to Isaiah's God of the burning coal, to the God of the gospel, and to have by you firm friends who will be your confessors and your challengers by God's grace as they remind you that you are a sinner saved by grace. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. A sinner remains our creed. And the second error, of course, is despair. Look at the way the word is given to Isaiah. I find this so encouraging. Afterward, God says, afterward, after the, word, the way that this world will go, after the whole catalogue of our sins is done, and they will be done with one day, 
after the work of God's repentance and sanctification and our redemption is completed and we are in his presence afterward and some days we wonder how this will ever be but we cling to it afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness the faithful city don't you find that encouraging when we think of the way that the church is now as weak and feeble as she appears to be persecuted in the east compromised in the west how will God achieve his plan? By the righteousness of God, Isaiah says. And Romans tells us that that righteousness is not merely a value, it is a person. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so we preach to ourselves and to others this gospel, motivated by it, to cling to Christ and by the Spirit to daily seek to obey him and trust him. But telling people, listen, this is the good news. That Christ has applied himself to your chief problem. Receive him. You who are estranged from him, receive him. He is your hope, but he is your very great hope. So the question to us as we come to Isaiah, where is our hope? Where is your despair this morning? Upon what are you building your life? Have you fallen into your own kind of version of deism where you are disconnected from God and you've said essentially I'll see you at the end? Or are you being faced daily with this call to depend upon the gospel and to respond to God in obedience and faith, because you can only do that by depending upon him in the gospel. So, big God, big plan. The gospel as we will see it in Isaiah. Let's pray. Lord, there's not a one of us here who can claim no matter how religious we have been, no matter what office we've achieved in the church, no matter what we might tell each other about the ways in which you have used us, there's not many of us, there's not any of us who can say that we have merited our own way into your presence. No, we have come, we have been brought as sinners, only made right by the cross of Christ and by your very great mercy to us. So, Lord, in our hope that we should derive from it, let us call to others and make it the banner of our own life to say that we are very great sinners, saved indeed by a very great saviour that we find in Isaiah. Amen.